0: Welcome, tennis fans, to KickServeRadio.com, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, featuring former world number one and seven-time Grand Slam champion, Matt Spielander, former Texas Longhorn, two-time All-American, Johnny Levine, and your host of KickServeRadio.com, Andy Zoden. Take it away, AZ.
1: And take it away, I will. Thank you very much. Welcome to KickServeRadio.com tonight. Our WTT update, World Team Tennis, is going on right now. It's really been just about the only game in town It's being played at the beautiful Greenbrier Resort in White Sulphur Springs, West Virginia. And we have got one of the coaches, Tim Blinkiron, is going to be joining us here shortly. But first, let me introduce the KickserveRadio.com team. It all starts with our superstar, Mats Vielander, former world-ranked number one player, he won seven major championships, was the number one player in the world in 1988, winning three of four majors, beating Yvonne Lendl in a thrilling final in the 1988 U.S. Open. We are also joined by two-time Texas Longhorn All-American Johnny Levine, who had a pretty good couple of runs at the U.S. Open himself. And, uh, boys, great to have you. Johnny, how you doing tonight down there in Phoenix?
2: Everything is good in Phoenix, Andy. It's very hot, uh, as you can imagine. I wish I was where you are in Denver, Colorado, where it's nice and cool, but surviving the heat and um, things are pretty good.
1: And Matts Haley, Idaho, you are the owner of Gravity Fitness and Tennis, an indoor facility that is soon going to be known from coast to coast, if not worldwide, as a result of this very show. How are things out in Haley, Matts?
3: Yeah, things here um, are very, very busy. Um, Obviously, uh, I'm very close to Sun Valley, Idaho, the the big famous ski resort. And we have had more tourists this summer than we've ever seen before. So I think people have realized that maybe living in the cities, maybe they should uh, rethink their situation, work from home and move out to the Rocky Mountains because uh, it's busy. We love it, though.
2: You were ahead of your time, Matt. So, I mean, you moved to, to Idaho and got out of that city life many years ago.
1: Matt set a trend, and it is no longer a well-kept secret. Okay, our featured guest tonight is a good buddy of mine from Las Vegas. He is Tim Blinkiron. He is the director of the No Quit Academy in Las Vegas. He is the coach of Asia Muhammad and the Las Vegas Rollers Tim Blinkiron, a former NCAA doubles champion in 1997 out of UNLV. Timmy, it is great to have you with us. How have things been going out at the Greenbrier Resort in West Virginia?
4: Yeah, it's been absolutely incredible, mate. Um, you know, we've been at the the one spot this year. The Greenbrier Resort is is absolutely stunning. And, uh, you know, without the travel, I think that's, that's made a huge difference. I know, I know last year, you know, we, we went to about five cities in, in six nights and, and we were exhausted after, after the first week. So, you know, just having uh, – being in one spot has, has been great. Um, you know, we've been very, very safe. We've been tested like uh, – I personally have been tested three times since I've been here. You know, they, they, they took that very, very seriously in order to, to try and keep everybody safe and try and stay in, in the bubble as much as we possibly can. All in all, it's, it, it's, it's been a great season and we're up to the semifinal rounds now. And we've got four absolutely stacked teams ready to uh, to duke it out for a million bucks.
3: Tim, uh, Matt's here. So um, World Team Tennis, I, I played the World Team Tennis in 1992, I believe it was. And I've heard so much about it. Of course, Bjorn Borg was forced to miss uh, the French Open in the late 70s because he wasn't allowed to play World Team Tennis and play the French Open. And now you've got the hot seat, which I love, because sometimes World Team Tennis gets sort of uh, hidden away because the real tour is, is going on. Not so much now. So I think everybody is watching. What's the difference, do you feel, this year when there hasn't been anything going on compared to previous years? More psyched up or what's the situation?
4: Yeah, no, it's a great question, Matt. Um, definitely everybody was ready to compete. It, it, it's funny. I think sometimes on tour, you know, you're competing week in, week out, and it, it can get overwhelming at times. And then, you know, during the pandemic, it was taken away. You couldn't, you couldn't compete even if you wanted to. I know in Las Vegas, they locked up all our tennis courts and took the nets down. So I think, I think that was great for a number of players. I think they, they got a forced break, you know, so their bodies got some rest, their minds got some rest. And so, you know, they were, they are fired up when they, when they got here to, to, to start the matches. And I think the level of competition has, has been really good for, for that reason.
2: Tim, let me ask you a question. I, I've watched some of the team tennis on, on uh, the tennis channel. It's been really fun to watch. I was curious as a, as a team tennis coach, I know you coach some individual players outside of team tennis. Um, now you're coaching other players that have their own coaches when you're out on the court, you've got these other players playing. What's that relationship like when these other players have their own coach? So what kind of, you know, information are you sharing with them? How, how deep does it get? Yeah, no,
4: that's no, a good question. Um, and, it, and it depends on the the individual, to be honest with you. I was lucky enough to have uh, the Bryan brothers on my team. Um, and these guys are just a couple of years younger than me and the greatest doubles team of all time. So you know, my question to them was, you know, can I get you a Gatorade? Uh, can I get you some eat or can I babysit for you? You know, um, you know, with, and then I had Sam Query as well, who's a bit of a veteran, you know, but a lot of it is, is understanding their idiosyncrasies a little bit, you know, being super positive. I mean, that's what I can bring to the table every day because, uh, you know, they, they start getting down on themselves, you know, just to, to inject the, the, the positive energy. But they have these little idiosyncrasies, like some players like to be given three balls, you know, and then they throw one back. Some like to just be given two. I mean, it's, those are the things you try and pick up on as you go um, in order to, you know, help them any way you possibly can.
1: Tim, it looks like there's been some changes made. Uh, e- even the color of the tennis court. I- I'm going to be honest with you. I found it a little bit tough to take world team tennis too seriously. When I would turn on the television and see all these crazy colors on a tennis court And then to try to look at it the same way I would look at the kind of tennis that I would watch during tour events. And now it looks like they've gone to a single colored court. And I find it easier to watch. I find it a little bit more legitimate. I find myself as a tennis fan a little bit more engaged. Players seem a little more serious. It's not such a let's play a bunch of music and make it a bunch of fun and games and turn it into a carnival for the kids. This seems like tennis this year.
4: Yeah, I know that that was a very popular decision when the players uh, with the players, should I say, um, when they decided to make that change. And and I agree with you. I think, you know, it, it seems more like, like serious tennis. The CEO of World Team Tennis right now, Carlos Silva, I mean, I've been in, involved for two years now. And, you know, he, he was the guy that was kind of behind, I think, some of the very, very positive changes that have been made with World Team Tennis. And, um, you know, I didn't really watch it back in the day. But I can tell you, even being here, we'll go and play our matches. I'll, I'll come back to the room, put the TV on, start watching the next match. I think it's just become a very, very entertaining. Uh, I think it's the only team event in the world uh, for tennis where we have the, the guys and the girls playing together on one team. And I think you know, having the singles, the mixed and the doubles all together at one time, it's just fantastic and you know, very entertaining, I think.
3: For sure, Tim. Um, I'm interested in, obviously, with the US Open um, a couple of weeks away from from now, the French Open is coming up. If it goes according to schedule, they are going to happen at this moment. So... The international players that have taken part in World Team Tennis, what, where, where do players stand in terms of how much have they practiced? Are they worried about coming to the US Open, having to quarantine before they come here? Or maybe before they go to the French Open, they have to quarantine. What are they saying about the next two months on tour?
4: Yeah, no, they're obviously, massive have been talking about that a lot, you know, and, and, and it's very confusing. I mean, everyone is kind of in limbo, not not really knowing what their next move is. Obviously, not... Real, you know, understanding what's required of them. I know uh, the talk at the US Open has been about creating several bubbles at, at, at different hotels. Um, I know initially that there'd been talk that you could only bring one player. I think now they've changed that to, to bringing, you know, three in your party instead of one. There's been a lot of talk about that. Um, but I think here at the Greenbrier, we've, we've proven it can be done safely. And, and I think, you know, hats off to Carlos Silva and his team because the whole time I've been here, i felt very, very safe. I don't believe anybody's got sick. And, and so it's definitely possible. And it's just fantastic to have sports back.
1: Timmy, before we let you go, uh, I know it's been a great experience for you. You've had a good year. And I just want to throw out there that you had a really great experience earlier in the year when Asia Muhammad teamed with Taylor Townsend and won a tour event, uh, a win over Serena Williams and, and Caroline Wozniaki. What kind of feeling was it to be coaching two players that would get a win over two former world-ranked number one players? How did that feel for you?
4: Oh, it was it was absolutely fantastic, mate. The, the interesting part of that is we went down there uh, for Asia to play singles and doubles, and for some reason, they'd moved the tournament back a week, which which changed uh, who showed up. Like, it was a very, very strong field. So Asia didn't end up even getting into the singles. Um, and so we, we were just there for doubles. We trained a lot. Uh, they didn't have a very good draw. They played, I, I want to say, the, the three seeds first round, um, and then they played Garcia and Gurgis. I think Gurgis has won that tournament singles a couple of times. Then they played Coco and uh McNally. And then the the prize for doing that was was playing Serena and uh Carolyn. And uh I, I mean I was very, very excited for that match. There was a little talk that maybe, you know, Serena had played a lot of tennis, singles and doubles, and maybe she'd pull out of the doubles, and I was just praying that uh that she wouldn't because I wanted Asia to have that opportunity you know, to play Serena and she, who knows how many opportunities you're going to have to play Serena. You know, she's, she's arguably the greatest of all time. And so to have that, that, that opportunity to play Serena and then come out on top was was absolutely incredible.
1: Arguably the greatest of all time. And I guess the other argument would be for somebody who you live in the same city with, Steffi Graf and how much opportunity do you have to uh, spend time with Andre and Steffi out in Vegas and, and, and what is their role sort of uh, among the, you know, the the tennis community out there?
4: You know, I used to, I used to obviously see them quite a bit when I worked for Andre um, at at his boys and girls club. Um, They are, they're very private people. As you can understand, I mean, they're, they're as famous as famous gets in tennis. They're, they're royalty as far as uh, you know, tennis is concerned. So they, they, they keep it themselves. You know, I know Jeannie Bouchard has, has moved to Las Vegas um, and they've had quite a bit to do to do with her, you know, um, getting on the court with her and encouraging her. And, and uh, you know, uh, Jeannie's working out with Gil, who was, was a big part of the Agassiz, the agency team. So, um, you know, I, I think they're participating in, in, in the way that they'd like to participate, kind of behind the scenes. And, uh, you know, it's just awesome being in the same city as them.
3: Yeah, uh, Tim, I'm interested, obviously, I, I'm sure everybody that's listening can hear that you and I have a slight accent. Some people sometimes think I am half Australian, Tim, and uh, I wish I was, wish I was, always had a lot of respect for <laughs> Australians. But, but being in America, be coaching, uh, um, I would say mainly American tennis players, being from Australia, what, what's, how close to your heart is it to see American tennis on the men's side, Blossom and be part of the world's best, and start winning Grand Slam tournaments again. I'm a Swede. I don't really care if Sweden has fun. We are just missing American men. How about you, Tim?
4: Yeah, no, no, man. I, you know, I'm I'm born and bred in Australia. I'm I'm very very pro Australian. But having been here since I was 17 years old, getting into coaching at 21, and having been doing that, you know, and trying to get kids into Division One college scholarships, we've now got 150. Uh, in, the, in the school now I'm very very passionate about not only American kids getting into school but they're being American champions to kind of keep tennis alive here in this country I mean the, we've got a battle you know with with the football and the, the basketball and the baseball I mean they tend to be the the first sports that, that you know boys gravitate to in this country um, but you know I'm a tennis guy and I love tennis and that's what I want to see thrive in this country and so in order for that to happen we've got to have men's champions and so i'd say that i'm i'm very much you know into having a, a men's champion multiple champions as soon as
1: possible well timmy speaking on behalf of not just american tennis but in particular intermountain tennis I want to tell you how proud I am of what you've done out there in Las Vegas. And you've been one of the big contributors in high-performance tennis in Intermountain and in the United States. And, and now you're showing it with what you're doing with World Team Tennis. So thanks for taking some time out there uh, in West Virginia to join us tonight. Look forward to getting you and Matts and Johnny together uh, in person here before long. We'll all meet out in Vegas and have a little fun. But thanks very much for doing what you do and, and what you did for us tonight. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welcome back, everybody. KickServeRadio.com. I want to thank Tim Blinkiron, the coach of the Vegas Rollers of World Team Tennis, for joining us. And before we go any further, I want to Have you hear a word about what's going on. We talked in the first segment about uh, gravity, fitness, and tennis in Haley, Idaho. Here's a little something more about that.
0: Nestled in the spectacular Sun Valley area in Haley, Idaho, Matt's V. Lander Tennis allows athletes like you and me to train inside so that we can excel outside. Former number one and seven-time, yep, that's right, Seven time Grand Slam champion Matt Spielander now owns Gravity Tennis and Fitness. And let me tell you, Gravity is the premier fitness and tennis club in the Sun Valley area. They have it all, including indoor tennis, lots of high quality training equipment in a clean and bright spacious workout area. They have yoga and Pilates, as well as hydro options. They also have martial arts and something I have never seen before TRX suspension training. But most importantly, let's talk about the tennis. You will be trained by one of the all-time greats in the sport of tennis. Time on court with Mats is an amazing experience, one I assure you, you will never forget. After my clinic with Mats, every time I step on the court, I hear that focused intensity in that charming Swedish accent, reminding me of all the techniques that improve my game and get results. So grab your family, your friends, or the whole tennis team, and head out to Haley, Idaho for a tennis experience of a lifetime. Go to mattsvlandertennis.com to find out what's in store for you when you get to Gravity Fitness and Tennis in beautiful Haley, Idaho.
1: Boys, we talked in the first segment, and we promised that we were going to talk a little bit about our very first tournament experience. And I want to take that and talk a little bit about our experience in junior tennis and what we're seeing from junior tennis in today's game. I'm going to go ahead and start with my first tournament experience, which was in 1973. And we brought up the name Craig Carden in the first segment. And of course he is now the coach of the Philadelphia freedoms and a a terrific player in his own right, a star at the university of Texas, a teammate of Johnny's and myself. And Craig and I were doubles partners back in 1973 playing in a 12 and under tournament. And we drew, Talbot Davis, who I know you know, Johnny, and John Scanlon, who I know you know his older brother, Matts. that is Bill Scanlon, and they were the number one team in the state of Texas in 12 and under tennis, and of course, it wasn't the fact that we got double bageled, but we were playing on a clay court, which I had never even seen before, and they were just toying with us, and I remember uh, Scanlon hit a lob about four miles in the air when they were just messing around with us, and I called it, and Craig called it, and I called it, and Craig called it. Finally, he pushed me down to the ground. I was laying in the alley covered in clay, only to watch Craig hit an overhead that went smack dab onto our side of the court, and it was just just a comedy of errors in watching us play our very first tournament at age 11. Craig and the singles went out and played his singles match. I remember him coming off the court really quickly with the balls in his hand, and he went to the tournament desk, and he turned in the scores, and and the guy said, who are you? He said, I'm Craig Carden. I won. And he said, what was your score? And Craig said, 6-4. And the guy looked at him like, well, okay. And he goes, so who do I play next? And he goes, well, what was the second set? And Craig kind of grabbed the tennis balls and ran out to the court, you know, to play some more, not realizing that we were playing best of three. So that's kind of where we were at age 11. And Johnny, I know your first experience was as an eight year old. And it's one that I know your father reminds you of all the time and I can't get enough of this story. So why don't you take it from there? Well, it's a doozy.
2: You know, when I think of my first tennis tournaments, it's hard. I don't have the best memory on that stuff, but, um, the, the, the one that comes to my mind and my dad reminds me it occasionally when he talks about when someone says, Hey, when did, when did your son, you know, begin playing tennis? And he, he remembers the, uh, The first tournament that um, I was probably eight years old and I had never played a tournament. And um, it was a small, I think, little junior tournament. And, uh, you know, you go up, you check in, you get the balls. My dad's like, you know, pretty close to me. And I end up going into the court and behind me, the gate closes. So I leave my dad. I'm with this other kid. I don't know what I'm doing except I'm crying and asking for my dad. And I run back out (laughs) and I grab my dad and he's like, what are you doing? And so he ends up coming on the court and like sitting in the umpire stands while I played this first match. So he loves telling that story. It's pretty embarrassing. The only other very early tournament that I can remember vividly was a tournament out in Tempe, Arizona. I think I was probably geez, maybe 10. And it was like a 10 and under tournament. And these two kids came in, there was like cup, just two out of state kids. And you're not going to believe who they were, but it was Phil Agassiz and Andre Agassi playing in this little junior tournament. Their father took them over to, to, to Arizona to play this tournament. And that was the first time, um, you know, we, we got to see those kids, but, but, uh, Phil was actually, you know, in my age group. And so I would see him in the juniors quite a bit, got to know him a little bit, a very nice guy, but that was the Andre Agassi initial signing right there in Tempe, Arizona.
1: Well, and I I know you had a big win over Agassi actually in the pros the first time you guys played. So you got that one uh, on your belt. That was a good notch. Matts, you had an experience that involved one of your parents in your first tournament as well. Did you not?
3: Uh, yes, I did, Andy. Um, so I grew up playing tennis, uh, Uh, in my dad and my mom's factory parking lot because my dad was in charge of uh, the sports teams of, uh, of their factory and the sports were ice hockey, a a sport called bandy which is ice hockey but on a sort of pond hockey situation soccer of course handball for the women and one year he couldn't get enough players so he thought tennis tennis was part of the factory championship as well and then you could send a team of two players only so so him and our neighbor built this tennis court in the the parking lot of the factory and then uh there's this before i'm born and then of course i'm i'm born and I was down there, there was a wall, and then suddenly the first tournament uh, is coming up, and uh, there was, I think, six of us. Uh, There's four of us from my family, which is me, my mom, uh, my dad, and my middle brother, and then uh, the dad of my friend, who's our neighbor. So this is a six-man draw, and I played my mom in the quarters. (laughs) I managed to win, uh, and I lost in the semis to our neighbor. who's a kid four years older than me. I still have a little trophy, a little porcelain, a little box. Uh, So, yeah, very special. I think the difference here, though, is uh, we played with very old tennis balls, but we did have a chair umpire. Because in Sweden, compared to American junior tennis, and I know you guys would appreciate this and would have appreciated it even more, I've never played a tennis match without a chair umpire. So how that worked was in the match that was played before you on your court, the loser was responsible for sitting in the chair for the next match it didn't matter if you were 12 years old and it was an a 18 and under match afterwards so I've never played trying to, uh, calling my own lines. so even then against my mom uh I didn't have to call my own line so that was lucky but yeah uh very uh very very special I'm sure my mom threw it I think she threw the match
1: That's what a good mom would do. And, you know, when we look back on those days, I think we look back on them with such great fondness and things have changed Matt's so much in junior tennis. And, and Johnny, I want to get your take on this too. But, you know, when we look back on the days of, of junior tennis, uh, you know, back in the seventies and eighties, when we were growing up, uh, it, it just seems like there was something more organic about it and genuine about it. And with the friendships and, lots of different players of lots of different levels being thrown into the same draw. Whereas now you you have to qualify to get from one level to the next level to the next level. And it just seems like it's almost run like more of a business. I guess my question to you, Matt is overall, would you have preferred to play junior tennis when you did, or do you see more value in it now?
3: Um, You know, I think that's very, very difficult to compare. I think if you're going to turn pro, Uh, Today, you better have the drive uh, because the competition is much, much stiffer than when I uh, turned pro in the late 70s, early 80s. I think today tennis is a business and and obviously on the pro side it is. But but even in the junior side and in high school tennis, uh, college coaches are out there looking for players to give scholarships and give them. And is it a blessing uh, or is it a curse? when that college coach comes up to the sophomore, junior, high school kid and said, listen, I'll give you a free education if you come and play tennis at my university. Does that kid then believe they don't have the talent to turn pro? And does then that passion they used to have for tennis, does it die out a little bit? I really, really think we need to get back to having the college system in America be a breeding ground for professional tennis, especially on the men's side, but also on the women's side. So I think today you better have the drive to, to uh, accomplish something individually. In my day, you just kept playing. You were enjoying it. You had fun with your friends. You wanted to win a little bit. I uh, never thought about turning pro and then suddenly, oh, maybe I'll just give it a shot. Yeah, I can always go back to, to school afterwards. Today, it's, uh, it's much tougher and not always as much fun.
1: Johnny, you tell the story about, you know, that little eight-year-old boy that was crying wanting his dad, and I know your father very well, and he knew exactly how to conduct himself as a tennis parent, and he pushed all the right buttons, and he was there for you when you needed him, and he would pull away a little bit when you needed him to do that, and I think back in those days when we were kids, you would look at that tennis parent that was sort of that overbearing monster. And you would kind of point across the way and go, oh, that's so-and-so's dad. And, oh, my God, this guy's crazy. Or so-and-so's mother. And, boy, is she a whack job. Now it seems like you go to these tournaments and you go, oh, that's so-and-so's dad. He's a really cool guy. Like that's the exception now is the, the tennis parent that does it the right way. Have you seen this thing evolve in a way that tennis parenting has become such a destructive part of the sport in many ways?
2: Well, I think I think the tennis uh, parent syndrome—you know, where the overbearing and gets too involved—and you see some parents in in the old days, you know, they question line calls that they're you know for their kids, and um, they really become a nuisance to the tournament. And you see a lot of parents that that just push their kids too far and um, put too much pressure on them. And I was fortunate, like you said, and I'm sure Matts have the same thing. But you know, my parents were didn't put any pressure on me and they let me play. And if I needed, if I wanted out of the game, I could get out of the game. And while I played, you know, they encouraged, they supported, you know, Matt's related the junior tennis game to today. It's big tennis is big business. So I think the stakes are higher. Then the competition is really, really stiff. Like, like Matt said, there's so many more players out there playing, competing. The level is much greater. Uh, you know, when we were juniors and we were doing well in the juniors and, and thinking about going to college, the top juniors were thinking of college as maybe a a, a two-year period and then you're going to go pro. I mean, today, all the kids wanted to turn pro. What, what I'm hearing out there today is if you're a good junior, the goal is to get a college scholarship because the chances of making it as a pro are just so difficult with the competition the way it is that um, it's a very select few that, that are going to make it. And, you know, as it relates to parents, I just think that the parents need to, to, to give the kids space. They need to encourage them. They need to move on after the kids get to a certain point, get them the right coaching, but just let, it, let the kids do it themselves. I think that's, that's the best thing. They got to have the independence and they can't be turning to their parents for everything. And the parents can't be putting too much pressure on their kids. There's enough pressure out there as it is.
1: So, Matt, go ahead. I know that you wanted to uh, make a point to that as well.
3: Yeah, guys, uh, I think that the case that comes up and that, that where I'm really confused and torn uh, is the obvious uh, Mike, Father Agassi and Andre Agassi and obviously Phil. Uh, and Andre's sister, they were a tennis family. And we, we've read Andre Agassiz's book. We've heard him publicly kind of say that he didn't, he hated tennis at times. Uh, but at the same time, he found a new love with it, co- competing with the help of Brad Gilbert. So I guess the question is is it worth the fight? You know, as a parent, is it worth the fight to have your kid go through and actually dislike tennis for a while, but then come out of the other side and be as successful as Andre was not on the tennis court because that – really means less to me. But uh, as an entrepreneur and start these fantastic programs for for unfortunate kids around Las Vegas and really around the whole country. So is it worth the fight? Is it not worth it? So I think that's the big question. And I think that's unfortunate for the sport at the same time as without somebody as driven as Mike Agas, you wouldn't have Andre uh, or the Williams sisters without Richard Williams. So I think that's the big question: Is it worth the fight? Are you are you willing to risk a relationship with your kid that might at some point go a little bit sour, even though it'll come back maybe later in life? What do you think, Andy?
1: Well, I I would defer back to you, Mats, for two reasons. Is that Number one, I would say that Mike and Andre Agassi and Richard and Venus and Serena Williams are absolutely an aberration and not the norm. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of parents see that dynamic and think that they are going to replicate that process. And as a result of replicating that process, they're going to replicate that result, which I think is they're dreaming. I I think you're going to have many more relationships that are going to be destroyed as a means of that process being undertaken with that result as an expectation than you're going to actually see that thing come to fruition. But my question is, obviously, you're a guy that's got four kids, one of which Carl played quite successfully at a high level and into college. And what was the dynamic like, A, with him having to live in the shadow of a former number one player in the world as his father, but then, are their parents that come to you and they expect to hear you say something to them? And then when you don't tell them what they want to hear and you do give them brutal honesty, there's a bit of a standoffishness there.
3: <laughs> you know, my son, Carl, played a tournament uh, in Denver, actually, and uh, he managed to win. And I overheard the father and the son say something about a questionable call, and they thought he was uh, my son. Tried to kind of hook him on the call, so I thought, okay, I got to go up and talk to this father. And he had no idea who I was, so I went up and said, "I said, hey, hey I'm Matts. I don't know. You might know who, who who I am, but I used to play, and I just want to let you know that there is absolutely zero chance." that he would be playing tennis if I ever thought my son would hook a call. So the fact that that even comes up as a topic, the fact that a parent even thinks that it's remotely possible that a kid would intentionally make bad calls, I think the culture there uh, is really weird. I think that the, the, uh, the coaches and the parents are putting way too much pressure on the kid, but at the same time, it is big business. I don't know what the, the real situation is. I think that the only way out of that situation is the USTA somehow has to come out with guidelines where they explain that the Williams sisters and Richard, uh, a, a, that is a such a huge exception together with Andre and Mike, of course. So, uh, and that's not out there. I don't think that's out there. I think we need to show more of the situations that did not work out. Uh, Jelena Dokic comes to mind uh, who moved from Croatia I believe to Australia father was, was spent some time in jail for, for abusive uh, behavior and I think that's what needs to come out a little bit but at the same time tennis is a tough sport it's individual and you need to be pushed a little bit by the people that love you so uh, ooh, I think it's a tricky question and I don't know what the, the right answer is
1: yeah, I think Jim Pierce comes to mind as well. All right, hold that thought. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about some good news as it pertains to the U.S. Open. But before we go to break, let's hear a little something from Evolve Vacation Rentals, as well as a message from Fred Biancos, Chief Operating Officer of the United States Professional Tennis Association. This
0: is Sarah Zodin for Evolve Vacation Rental. You know I love my travel, be it for tennis or just for fun. And that's where Evolve Vacation Rental comes in. Now that we're getting back to some fun, with Evolve, fun is easy. Evolve provides verified rentals, the best online marketplace rates, and a rest easy promise for every vacation rental. With over 14,000 properties, you are sure to find a vacation home that is calling to you. So dust off your travel destination bucket list and go to com to book your next vacation rental. That's right. Go to evolvevacationrental.com.
1: We're joined by United States Professional Tennis Association Chief Operating Officer Fred Biancos. Fred, 2020 has been a tough year for tennis pros, but they have an opportunity because of what's going on with USPTA and USTA to get their dues paid for. Talk us through that program.
5: It has been a tough year, but um, in our cooperation and working with USTA, um, we're going to be able to offer free dues for members in good standing for 2021. And to be in good standing means that you have to have your dues paid up for 2020, and then to be Safe Play compliant, which is, includes the, the background screening to make uh, all of our pros uh, the safest possible for the uh, tennis playing public. And then also be current with your education. So uh, if you can manage to do all that before October 1st, which is the deadline, then you will have free dues for the 2021 uh, calendar year.
1: Although there won't be a live world conference in New Orleans as it was planned for September, there will be a virtual world conference. It looks like a great alternative. It looks like you guys are playing it safe and being responsible. Talk a little bit about that as well.
5: Yeah, unfortunately, we're, we, you know, we had to cancel the, the live uh, conference for September, but we found a really cool platform where we can have a virtual conference. It'll be just like attending a normal conference. So it's pretty exciting stuff. We're going to have a top-notch list of presenters and experts. We're planning to have 15 sessions throughout the three days on September 21st through the 23rd and have it be really interactive and, and a pretty cool experience.
1: Some pretty good swag and some good motivation to register early. Ninety-nine bucks, seventy-nine if you're safe play compliant. Correct.
5: Yes, correct. We, we have two deadlines: October first for the free dues to be safe play compliant, and then also uh, December thirty first uh, in order to be able to rejoin and be a member in good standing come 2021
1: he's fred viancos he's chief operating officer of the united states professional tennis association freddie thanks so much for all you do and thanks for joining us here on kickserveradio.com today thanks az Welcome back, everybody. KickServeRadio.com. Again, want to thank Tim Blinkiron, head coach of the Las Vegas Rollers of World Team Tennis for the World Team Tennis update that we had in the first segment. Talked a little bit about our first experience ever in tennis uh, at, at the tournament level when Johnny was a crying little eight-year-old and I was getting thrown on the ground by Craig Cardin, my doubles partner, and Mats was beating his mom in the quarterfinals of his first tournament. So some crazy stories there. Uh, but now it's time to talk about what's going on in this day and age. And last time out, guys, we had Mary Carillo join us and talked about the fact that it did not look like many of the top players in the world were going to be playing in the U.S. Open, that the French Open had a chance of getting a legitimate draw for a major championship, but the U.S. Open did not. Now it looks like there's evidence to believe that Novak Djokovic may play the U.S. Open. Rafael Nadal may play the U.S. Open. In fact, as of now, we're expecting 40 of the top 43 men and 39 of the top 53 women to play in New York. Mats, how surprised are you to hear this?
3: Wow, I mean, obviously, that's the best news that I've heard in uh, in in months. I never ever thought that we would get both uh, Novak and Rafa to even commit to the U.S. Open, to be honest. But of course, they have sponsorships uh, around the world, so they need to do that. I think that the big question, first of all, obviously, we have to take a day at a time. But I think the big question for these guys, which or at least we thought, is is what happens after New York? Because you got to head back to. Uh, Europe And um, uh, I'm supposed to go back to Europe for, to cover the U.S. Open from uh, London because I'm not allowed to go to the U.S. Open site, of course, working for Eurosport. But going to Europe means you got to have a two-week quarantine. Now, what does exactly two-week quarantine mean to a tennis player? They can't leave their house or their landline where they have to be reached by authorities. So how do they practice? So I'm not really sure what's going to happen to these guys because obviously they can't take two weeks off after the Open, and then play the French. But I think there's one reason why Rafa Nadal is playing the U.S. Open, and the most important reason, and it's Novak Djokovic. I mean, in 50 years, we're not going to be talking about uh, the corona, the 2020, the U.S. Open didn't have a great field. It's going to be counted as a major. And Rafa Nadal needs to be there to stop Novak from, from getting to the same uh, number in a couple of years as Roger and Rafa, and Novak the other way around. If Rafa comes out and wins it, suddenly Novak might not reach Uh, Rafa and Roger. They both be on 20. So I think the main reason they're playing is they need, they want that major and they want to beat the other guy.
1: And we know that Novak Djokovic and Rafael Nadal are the defending champions of all four majors between those two players. And we also know that what a two-week quarantine means for you, Mats Vilaander, is that you probably take two strokes off your handicap. Johnny, when we talk about being in New York, you were just there recently, spent some time there. We hear what we hear. The, the stories get blown out of proportion. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes they're overstated. Sometimes they're understated. What was your feeling being in New York? Did you sense that this thing is as bad as everybody makes it out to be? Although I guess you go from New York to Phoenix, it's like going from the skillet into the fire, I guess.
2: You know, New York right now is doing great. Their infections and cases are so, so far down from where they were, obviously. I mean, they're doing one of the best of of any state in the country. So I think that bodes real well for the U.S. Open. When you look at what's been going on with the tennis events that have been played, the the world team tennis has had a lot of success in the three weeks that they've been doing that in that bubble there at the Greenbrier. That is what I think the U.S. Open is looking at and seeing the success that they had from the safety standpoint. And I, and I believe that they're going to they're going to pull this thing off. Now, whether the, the players that have entered, you know, are, are, are entering just to, you know, be able to play if they want to play and then maybe pull out at the at the last minute that that we'll have to see where that where that goes. But but things are looking good right now for the U.S. Open.
1: So, Mass, that being said, obviously things looking good in New York. Uh, You had kind of hoped to be able to do things uh, in a studio, stay close to home, not have to travel. There's not going to be any fans. Uh, What are your feelings? What are your family's feelings? I mean, there's got to be a lot to consider with respect to what you're about to undertake, not even as a player, but just as a broadcaster
3: yes there's a lot to to um to think about for sure, but I think that um I think we have a responsibility to promote uh and this is going to sound like i 'm preaching uh to the and I know it's through the choir but I, I think we have a responsibility to promote tennis in these very difficult times because tennis is a sport and a game that you can really play. With social distancing in mind, and I think to have the U.S. Open on TV uh, when there's not that many other sports around, I think people are going to tune in, and I think it's important. Tennis. This is a. a it's an unfortunate situation. But at the same time, tennis has to take advantage of this situation because tennis is a very, very safe sport uh, during these times. So I think that I feel a responsibility to go and promote the U.S. Open as much as possible, Uh, whether I I have to go to Europe and do it from a studio in in Great Britain or if I can do it from home, uh, not sure. But in the end, I think tennis wins. Tennis, the sport, wins, and I'm going to have a bad conscience uh, not because of Eurosport or because of a human being. I think it's the sport. I think the same thing happened to Roger Federer at the French Open a couple of years ago where he wasn't going to play uh, for a few years and then he decided to play. I think we all feel we owe so much to the sport. And tennis needs all of us at this point. And I think tennis can take a jump in the popularity uh, contest at this very moment because of the social distancing that is possible.
1: And I guess my question then goes back to you, Johnny, with regard to is it the safety of the sport itself that we are concerned about? Or is it the safety of all of the ancillary individuals that are connected to the sport that then determines the level of safety that we're talking about here, i.e. the fans, i.e. the officials, ball kids, that type of thing. That seems like more of a concern with respect to what might or might not happen than two people that are a hundred feet apart hitting a tennis ball back and forth
2: well yeah i mean i I think I've, I've read a lot of comments from players that they're they're concerned about playing it's really not always about themselves it 's about the people that they're, they could potentially if they get it and it's asymptomatic and they don 't know they have it. Um, I know they're going to do a lot of testing, but it's it's about the other people, and I think that you have, um, you're in in contact with with other folks out there. I think they can get it done right. I think that the U.S. Open is very fortunate to have had a long time to work on this, every day for for months now. I would think that this is going to be a very safe event, safe as as possible, and they're going to have every protocol in place. And so all the Americans are going to be there if they can get in, there's no question. I think the travel abroad is, is is the difficult situation right now. And I think the players are concerned about getting on an airplane because getting on an airplane right now is is it's safe, but it's not the safest thing. And I think a lot of players are concerned about that.
1: So that's the rub, Matt. And I'm going to give you the last word tonight. Yes, tennis is a safe sport, but it is absolutely an international sport. And does that mitigate the safety of the sport by way of the fact that it's such an international melting pot of people that don't necessarily always practice the same safety protocols. And as a result, let's call it what it is, the United States has a reputation as being one of the worst countries in the world for how poorly we have handled this pandemic compared to a lot of these other countries. And to a large extent, we are persona non grata in a lot of these countries.
3: Yes, I think that that is the risk to me is that we... I guess being in America, we, we haven't had very strict guidelines. Uh, they've been different in every state and sometimes in, in each city. Uh, and I think in Europe, it's a lot easier. The countries are a lot smaller and you can make very strict guidelines for the whole country. But I think that's the, the choice you have to make. Is it, is it is it a good thing to show people that tennis players and pro tennis can can go on while other people cannot go to work and they have to be safe, so I think that the most important part here, I think, is to not be judgmental to me because there are situations at home with players that that have old parents that maybe have uh, uh, some some underlying situations physically. And they don't want to take the risk to play the U.S. Open and they want to come back and they can't see their grandparents or parents or whatever. So I think that keep the judgment uh, to yourself and applaud everyone, even the ones that don't go because you know everyone does want to go. We have a a sign above the main street here in in Sun Valley, Idaho. It says, slow down, do your part, be kind. And I think that's what we all have to do. So I think it's going to be great. Is it the right message to send to, to the rest of America and the world? I'm not sure. But I think uh, it's really, really important to just let people kind of make up their own mind. And, and that's it, it's, it's their choice and only theirs.
1: Words to live by from the great Mats Wielander, seven time Grand Slam champion, former world number one. Mats, thanks so much for everything tonight and always johnny thanks so much for all of your contributions we are kickserveradio.com we are comprised of matt's v lander johnny levine myself i'm andy zoden we are on the tennis channel podcast network we want to thank our guest tonight tim Blinkhorn. we want to thank former guests in case you missed them, mary carillo has joined us recently as has yvonne lendl as has jim courier as has chris mad dog russo as have Joel Drucker and Steve Flank, and you're going to hear many great others if you stay tuned to kickserveradio.com. Matter of fact, you're going to be hearing from the golden bear himself, the great Jack Nicklaus, will be joining us on kickserveradio.com soon. Thanks, everybody. Stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll catch you next time.